that's kind of the cliff notes on what has happened so far. So I'm excited to go to, uh, to chapter 8. Uh, if you have the story with you, you can turn that to chapter 8. If you have a Bible with you, uh, chapter 8 is basically the book of Judges. So you can turn to the book of Judges. Uh, if you have a device, you can flip over to Judges. Uh, I don't know how you flip your device, but... Uh, in any case, uh, what I would love for you to do is just write either in the margin of your Bible or at the top of chapter 8 or make a note of it in your device or just make a mental note of it, this phrase, choose joy or chase happiness. These, this is an option that we're all really presented with in life, uh, to choose joy or to chase, chase happiness. In general, we'll spend most of our lives doing doing one of those two things. Uh, so that's kind of the theme that I would like to talk about as we go through chapter eight. Um, you may have noticed this. If you really want to capture the story, you have to do the reading because there's no way we can talk about it all here on Sunday morning. I mean, I could talk about it, but you wouldn't have the endurance to listen to me talking about every detail of it. And so, uh, so really my goal as a pastor in doing this is actually to help you engage the scripture, engage the story. It's not to drill down on every single detail because the truth is engaging God's word is the thing that's gonna help you grow in your relationship with him over time, not just hearing from me or someone else once a week. And so, so that's really my goal. Uh, so I hope you'll read chapter eight this week. Uh, let me just start right here with this. Uh, a few years ago, I had this situation. I noticed that when I sat at my computer for a length of time, uh, which I do often as part of my job and in preparation, uh, I started to have headaches. And then one day I realized it's because I'm doing this the whole time for like four or five hours at a stretch. Like, no wonder I have a headache. Uh, what's really funny, uh, some of you speak in public. I do often, probably 70, 80 times a year. A lot of people, that's their listening face. And I used to sometimes, I used to think, I must just be a complete idiot. Like, I must be a total moron if they're making that face. And then I realize, um, I mean, it's possible that I'm a complete idiot, but I think it's because they can't see very well and they need to get their eyes checked. And so I started to have this problem. And uh, so I just did what you would do, right? I just thought, well, if I ignore it long enough, it'll fix itself. Like, that's, I think that's the reasonable thing that most of us would choose to do. And so, uh, so I did that, but then I ran into another situation. I was in Los Angeles, which I've been to many times. I kind of know my way around most of the city. Uh, but I was on this one particular freeway, and I was going somewhere that I had never been. Now, there's two kinds of freeways in L.A. Uh, there's the ones you see on TV that are parking lots. Uh, they don't move. And then there's the other kind where it's just pure anarchy, right? You've been there before. Like, the speed limit literally means nothing. If you're going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit, you're getting passed and middle fingers. Right? That's, you, you know, like, some of them, there, people are literally going, like, 90, 100 miles an hour in a 55-mile-per-hour zone. I love that. I don't want to like deal with that as my normal, but it's just like the rush of like, I'm in pure chaos and one false move, 80 people will die. Like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Uh, so, uh, so I'm driving along in one of those, but I'm looking for my exit. And uh, so I'm doing this at like 90 miles an hour, like squinting and making that face. And uh, I, by the way, I've looked in the mirror when I did that, and I know how absurd that looks. That is not a good look. Uh, and so I'm looking for my sign, and uh, then I finally, I see it, but it's only like 200 yards away because I can't read it from as far away as I used to. And so, you know, at 90 miles an hour, whatever it was, uh, 200 yards goes by pretty quick, right? It goes by pretty fast. So I have like a second to cut across four lanes of traffic and risk my life to get to some restaurant that I was meeting someone at. And I thought to myself, you know, probably go to the doctor and like look at the chart and look through the little thing and read the letters. And 
do that whole bit. So I did. I finally went to the doctor. Uh, you know, I did all the things that you do there. And uh, I read all the letters wrong. And then I got these. I got a prescription. And I put them on. And I thought, that's the world I remember. I remember that. There's people here. I thought it was just my wife here. This whole time, I thought I had just been talking to Brandy. Uh, I could see again, everything was clear. Not only could I see things clearly, but I could see them clearly from like three times farther away than I could see them without. But the thing is, nothing about the room has changed since I put my glasses on. You're all still in the same spot. You're all still making your listening faces, uh, which are all beautiful and pleasant, by the way. Uh, Nothing's changed except now I've changed my lens and I can see clearly. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, I see where you're going. I see what you're roping me into. Pastor Kelly, uh, sometimes in life we find ourselves in this situation where the circumstance doesn't need to change, but our lens needs to change. Uh, that's, that's almost always the case. I found that in most of the difficulties in my life, the problem is as much me as it is anything else. It's as much my attitude as it is the situation, or as much my perspective as it is the situation. This is what I get into, uh, and I think you do too. I get on the hamster wheel of life. I'm just going day to day kind of chasing happiness, you know, trying to do the things that I think are important that are going to make me fulfilled. I think we all, we all do that. Um, and I just kind of like ignore the fact that I don't feel it. I just keep chasing it. Does that, does that make sense? I'm calling us to do a biblical thing, which is change our perspective and choose to be joyful instead of chasing happiness. Um, now, I get, I know, you're, you, somebody might be thinking, that makes sense to me. I think that's in the Bible somewhere. But that's not easy, because there's some pretty tough things that come along in life. Uh, I'm not saying, suggesting that it's easy. I totally understand you, you got to fight for it sometimes. Um, but what I am suggesting is that we can choose to be joyful, um, because otherwise the option is we're kind of like the dog chasing his tail in pursuit of happiness, uh, which is sort of ironic, because we have a dog who can actually catch his tail. Here's the thing about that, though. Once he does, once he does, he, he just keeps going in the circle except now with his tail in his mouth, which is worse because I know where that tail's been. Uh, so catching the tail is not what you think it's going to be. It's actually, it's actually worse. We have the option to get out of that cycle. So check this verse out. It'll be familiar to a whole bunch of you. It's in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Uh, the apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi. And he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've been on both sides of that. I've learned the secret of being content in, every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Apparently, there's a secret, there's a, there's a choice, there's an opportunity to have joy, to have contentment. And I get that life happens and that can be really hard, but watch what he says next. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's possible through Christ. With the right perspective, we can stop chasing happiness and choose to be joyful. Is it always easy? Not even close. You all know that. You've all been on the planet long enough to know that it's not always easy to be joyful. But we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So I'm going to give you an assignment. This is participatory because we've got to get the blood flowing. I know you all love your neighbor. You want what's best for them. So I want you to turn to someone around you and say, you got options. Choose joy. Okay. Now, now I want you to put on your bossy face and say, you got options. Choose joy. Go on now. You can do it. All right. 
All right, good. Some of you really, really enjoyed that. If I was to assign a scripter to chapter eight, chapter eight is a little bit like the movie Braveheart, like one of the great guy movies of all times. Uh, there's, you know, uh, Mel Gibson out there defending the honor of his oppressed people. Uh, so there's blood and guts and war in chapter eight. And, you know, if that's not your shtick, stick around next week. There's uh, romance and tears and marriage and all that garbage. Uh, but chapter eight, chapter eight is like a, the guy's, the guy's chapter. Uh, so it's pretty exciting. If you read chapter seven this week, which we talked about last week, uh, that happened during the period of Joshua. Joshua was leading the nation of Israel, and he was the one who led them into the promised land. Uh, they conquered the promised land. And so now when we pick up chapter eight at the beginning of the book of Judges, they are now peacefully settled into the promised land. Things are well for them. Things are going really, really great for the people of Israel. And so uh, just to help us get a sense of what chapter eight is like, I have a video for you that I think will give you a good descriptor of just like the basics of human nature. So let's go ahead and check that one out real quick. What is it? What did Santa bring? What is it? I want a toy. Look. I want a toy. Open it up, see what it is. Ah, oh, look, it's a princess shirt. I want a toy. I want a toy. It's a lovely princess shirt. Don't you like it? I want a toy. <laughs> Yeah, uh, every parent here probably has stepped in that at some point. Some, you've been there before. Um, here's the thing. Uh, Brandy and I have three kids, and so we've probably seen some of those scenarios play out. Uh, I didn't teach them that. Did you teach them that? Not on purpose, anyway. None of us is teaching our kids to be, like, entitled and, and rude and ungrateful. Not on purpose. Uh, none of us is trying to do that. But it turns out that we actually come fully equipped with that feature. Like, right from the factory. We just... We come out. Uh, we come out pretty selfish. That's, that's how it happens. That's, that's in our nature. Humans are just kind of like that. Uh, so let me bear my soul on this particular issue. I just want to be transparent with you, okay? When I was a kid, I would get birthday cards, like from grandma, from relatives, right? You probably, hopefully you experienced that. If you never got a birthday card, let me know. I will send you one. Uh, but when I was a kid, they had stuff in them, right? Namely, Money. When I was really little, sometimes it was a stick of gum. Did anybody ever get a birthday card with a stick of gum in it? Yeah, okay. Okay, I'm sorry for you. Whoa, you two are brother and sister, and you were the only two that raised your hands. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it would have stuff in it. And the truth of the matter is, when I was a kid, it was just about the stuff in the card, right? Uh, Kevin James, if you know he is a comedian, he has this whole sketch about how men read cards and how women read cards and how they pick them out at the store, uh, I didn't care about the card. Like, I'm just going to be honest, it was all about what was in the card. Now, as an adult, uh, I get the cards, but they usually don't have stuff in them, and I'm good with it. It's great. Like, it really is the thought that counts. Like, I got a job. I don't need grandma's money. I mean, I'm going to get it eventually. Don't get me wrong. So, uh, was that over the line? Yeah, okay. Uh, I just like the card. Like, the fact that grandma took the time to write the card and send it to me is awesome. How great is that? Uh, so I don't need the stuff, but there's this intermediary transition period between being the kid who gets the stuff in the card and then appreciating just the card. And so when I was like 19, I would get the birthday card from grandma and I would be like, 
hoping there was something in it, but then I would get it and it would be empty and I would feel like disappointed, like now I gotta read the card. Uh, now I gotta care about the card. Like, there's no 20 bucks in here, and back then that would like fill the tank in my Honda Prelude. I know, all right? Some of you were like, oh, I wanted a Honda Prelude. That was, that was the one to have back then. Uh, and, and then when it didn't come, I would feel disappointed, and then I would feel guilty because I was disappointed, and then I would feel even worse about the fact that I really didn't want to read the card. And the bottom line is, I was just totally selfish. Like, my parents didn't teach me that. I, it's just in my nature. It's just, it's just what I did. In chapter 8, Israel has become extremely selfish. They become totally discontented with what God has provided for them. Uh, just like I couldn't, it, it took me a period to like get comfortable and appreciative of the fact that grandma remembered my birthday and she loved me and sent me a card. Uh, they're in the same spot. They don't appreciate the thing that God has given them. They begin to complain, even reject God. They've decided that chasing happiness instead of choosing joy is the direction that they want to go. They don't want to be content with what God gave them. So, so let me just paint the picture for you of what's happening. Uh, you'll remember they used to be slaves in Egypt. Okay, so the entire history of the Jewish people right up to this day uh, is set against the backdrop that they used to be slaves in Egypt. Uh, they used to be slaves in Egypt. They had hard lives with no hope for anything better. But God delivered them gave them their own land where they could have husbands and wives and children, and they could live in their own homes. They could have their own farms. They could have their own livestock. Uh, they had peace. They had prosperity. Not only that, but they had legacy. They could pass it on to future generations of their family. They literally had every single thing that they ever dreamed of, and they want a toy. They're just like, I'm actually pretty sure, God, that uh, all these things you've given us that are all the things, everything we ever asked for, but, but I'm pretty sure that something else is going to make me happier than what you've given me. That's, that's where they're at as a nation. Now, if I'm just really, really candid, they look sincerely foolish. Um, now, I don't want to be overly judgmental because if we were there, we'd probably be all, you know, right in the same boat with them. But it's kind of a harsh thing to say, but if you've read the story or even if all you know is just what I just told you, it's easy to see how absurd it is for them to be discontent with what God has provided. He's given them everything they ever wanted. I think for us, it's important for us to look at their story and just learn from it, uh, to understand how unreasonable their discontentment is, because otherwise, we end up making mistakes like thinking, uh, this marriage isn't doing it for me, another one will be better. Uh, my experience has been when my grass gets kind of brown, it's usually my own fault for not watering the lawn. Uh, we might, if we overlook their story, we might make the mistake of thinking that more of what hasn't worked in the past will make us happy in the future, or that a better version of what hasn't made us happy in the past will make us happy in the future. Uh, we might make that mistake. Humans, it turns out, have been discontent since way before we got here, and they'll be discontent with what they have way after we're gone. So we can look at their example and use it as a lesson to not get suckered into making bad choices because we're deceived by unreasonable discontentment. Here's their problem at the highest level. Uh, they have decided, whether intentionally or not, that even God and everything that he's given them is not enough for them. It's not, it's not enough to make them happy, so they're going to get out and chase it. No matter what God's given them, it's not enough for them to be fulfilled. They want a toy, no matter what. Uh, they, they needed to be free from their oppressors back in Egypt, and God freed them, but they wanted a toy. 
They needed food when they were in the desert, and God gave them food, but they wanted a toy. They needed a home, a land, a place to call their own, and God gave it to them, but they just, they wanted a toy instead. Now, here's what's really surprising to me, okay? There's, there's a generation that went from Egypt to the promised land. They were mostly kids when they left Egypt, uh, but they were adults in the promised land, and they failed to pass on the story of what God did for them. And so then another generation came along, and they had no idea. They had no idea how to follow God, how to be grateful. So uh, if you got the story handy, we'll be on page 103. It's Judges 2, verse 10. This is what it says. It says, after that, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Okay, different time, different world. Uh, they used to worship uh, actual idols um, in their day. That does still happen in the world today, but not in our world today. We worship other things. We worship material. We worship relationships. We worship sex. We worship all the things that we think will fulfill us. That's our version of the Baals, uh, but that's, that's what they were doing. They had turned away from God and had chosen to worship other gods. They decided he was no longer enough. And this kind of kicks off a cycle that looks something like this. I made a little graphic for you uh, that's, you know, a little bit too tall. That's all good. Uh, This is a cycle that they start to go through. Uh, First, it starts out, God delivered them from Egypt and the promised land. Uh, It's all good. Don't worry about it. Uh, God delivered them from Egypt and the promise and brought them to the promised land. And and then they get there and they're all comfortable and that's all good. But then once they're comfortable and peace and prosperity set in, it's not enough. So they chase other things for their happiness. And then because they take their eyes off God, they end up in trouble. They end up enslaved to other people. Uh, This is the cycle. So what happens? Well, we already know because it happened back in Egypt. They cry out to God for help again. And God, because he's merciful, he sends a judge. Uh, The judge is like a a God-honoring national leader. Uh, It's different than than our mental picture of like a judicial judge. The judge would rise up and lead the whole nation back to faith in God, and God would restore them. He would deliver them. So when we think of a judge, uh, we think of judge as like punitive. Their purpose in our culture really is to punish the bad guys. Uh, A judge in the Old Testament really is the person who God would raise up to save the people, to lead them back to him. And so uh, so they get to this point, God would deliver them, the judge would lead them back, and they'd get all peaceful and prosperous again, and then what would happen? The whole cycle would start over again. Not once, not twice, not three times, 13 times. They went around this cycle, 13 times in 330 years. They just kept going around this little cul-de-sac of stupidity. Uh, I, I, think, I think the word cul-de-sac is actually a French word that means dead end, by the way. Uh, this is what they're, they're just doing laps and wondering why they keep driving past the same house, right? They're, they just keep going around the same thing. 330 years, only 10 of them, only 110 of them were lived in peace. So about, two, so about two-thirds of the time, the period of the judges... They're actually in oppression under other outside people groups. Uh, So the story in chapter 8, it mentions three of these judges, three really prominent ones. Uh, They're all kind of interesting. So so I just want to make mention of them. The first one is Deborah. Uh, Deborah is, uh, you may have figured out, um, a woman that God raised up to lead the nation of Israel. On page 105 of the story, it's Judges 4.4. It says, now Deborah, a prophet, the the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. Uh, some people who like to debate theological matters will debate about 
uh, the role of women in leadership. Um, food for thought for you right there. Uh, turns out God wanted Deborah to lead the entire nation, uh, not to be like the assistant to the leader. In fact, she's the assistant to God. So uh, that's something to think about for you if that's, uh, if that's your jam. Deborah, uh, at God's voice, she, uh, she was instructed by God to recruit a general named Barak. No relation, if you're wondering. Uh, and uh, she says to Barak, listen, God has spoken. He's told me that you need to go out and attack the oppressing army uh, who is led by a general named Sisera, and he's going to give you the victory. God's going to lead you. It's in the bag. You got it. No problem. God's going to go before you. He's going to win the victory. This is Seahawks at home against the Dolphins. Go take it, Barak. Nothing to it. And he says, I don't know, Deborah. Sounds kind of scary. I'll tell you what, I'll go if you come with me. So Deborah says, well, I will go with you because God has spoken and God has said, we're going to defeat this army. But because of your lack of faith and you're not willing to believe God for his promise, you're not going to get the credit. A woman named JL, she doesn't name JL at that point, but she says a woman is going to get the credit for the victory. Uh, So they go and uh, sure enough, Barak's army does what they do and God is giving them the victory and General Sisera runs away. Uh, and he finds himself at the tent of a woman named Jael. And uh, they had, their people had had some interactions, so they were familiar with each other. And he says, will you hide me? Will you keep me safe? And she says, of course, come in. Come into my tent. And he says, oh, good. He's so relieved. Thank you. Uh, I am so thirsty, he says. And she says, you know what? Here's some water. She gives him something to drink. You look tired, sister. Why don't you, why don't you lay down and go to sleep, and I'll, just, I'll keep you safe. So he lays down in her tent, and... She covers him up with a blanket, and, uh, and then she stands guard, right? She, she protects him. This is what it says on page 106. It's Judges 4.21. It says, But J.L. Heber's wife picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground. And if you're wondering, it also says, And he died. I uh, just didn't want you to go around thinking, ah, I wonder whatever happened to old Sisera. Uh, no, she set him up for it the whole time, and sure enough, <laughs> Jael's pretty hardcore. Uh, kind of makes you wonder, like, uh, what it was like when her husband had a spat, what that, what that looked like. Uh, Barak comes looking and says, hey, have you seen Sisera? He was headed this way. And she says, as a matter of fact, I have seen Sisera. And just like Deborah declared it would be, Jael becomes the hero of their nation, and God, through her, delivers Israel once again, and peace and order is restored. But you might have figured the cycle's going to go around again right after the time of Deborah, right after God had restored their safety and prosperity. Judges 6.1 says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So the people fall under oppression to another group called the Midianites. Now, uh, it's only been 40 years at this point since Deborah, uh, since Deborah led the people back to safety and prosperity, and here they are, turned away again, uh, under, and now they're under the rule of the Midianites, and again, not surprisingly, they cry out, God help us. Now, I would just call a timeout in the story right there and say, have you ever found yourself in the same pattern? Uh, things are cool right now. I'm good. I got what I need. My needs are met. There's a God. I'm sure of it. Uh, and then something goes wrong. Somebody gets sick. A job gets lost. Something bad happens. And then we get real about our relationship with God. And you're like, I'm never, I'm never going to like turn away from this. But what happens when it becomes 
easy again. Okay, I'm just saying, like, we shouldn't be too judgmental against the people because probably most of us can relate to it. Well, in Judges 6, verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, we've talked about Gideon semi-recently, so I'm not going to totally exhaust his story. Uh, But here's what you need to know about Gideon. Gideon was the weakest member of the weakest family from the weakest of the 12 tribes of Israel, which, oh, by the way, is the weakest nation in question at this point. Uh, Gideon is like, uh, he's just a frail guy. And uh, God comes to him and says, listen, uh, I want you to raise up an army to lead Israel against the Midianites and set your people free. Um, So based on just what you know right now about Gideon, like, is he the guy you're going to go to? Probably not, but what's the idea? Well, God wants people to know that it was him, right? Obviously, that's what God is going for. So here's the situation. The Midianites have an army of 135,000 soldiers. Gideon eventually manages to raise up an army of about 32,000 soldiers, which is pretty long odds, right? That's not favorable. But God says to him, Gideon, you got too many soldiers. And Gideon's response is basically like, no, that's not even a thing. Uh, Like, you know, I don't know, like too many shoes in your closet, that's a thing. Too many soldiers when you're getting ready to go into battle, that's not a thing. That's like telling the cook there's too much bacon on your plate. It's not even a thing. Right? Well, through a series of tests, Gideon's army eventually gets down to 300 soldiers uh, against 135,000. And so, uh, of course, uh, God is saying, the people need to know that it was me who delivered them, uh, not just you, the judge, Gideon. And so God gives him the battle plan. He says, I want you to give every soldier, uh, I want you to give them a torch and a jar and a trumpet and a sword. And oh, by the way, the sword's just for show. So just the other three things. You're not actually even going to use the sword. And so the plan is they encircle the Midianites' camp at night. It's dark out, right? They don't have streetlights. It's different than it is for us. Uh, And uh, they encircle the camp and on cue... They smash the jars, blow the trumpets, raise the torches. They just create chaos. Well, the Midianites wake up. It's pitch black. They think they're already being attacked, so they're just going for it. They're just, they're just slicing each other up, and they end up, uh, most of their army is completely destroyed at their own hands. The, the Israelites never even actually fight against them, and God, through Gideon, delivers the people back to peace and prosperity. And on page 112, Judges 8.33, this is what it says. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. Right back where we started. That's really strong language, by the way. I mean, I don't want to be graphic or anything, but that's not like, hey, they dabbled in some bad stuff. That's like, hey, we're giving ourselves away freely to false gods. As soon as Gideon died... Well, then the people become oppressed by another group, the Philistines, Uh, and God raises up another judge named Samson. Samson's shtick is God gives him superhuman strength. Uh, On page 112, it's Judges 13, 5, God actually gives a word to Samson's mother, and he says, you will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. Uh, The Nazarites uh, took a vow of very strict uh, holiness and uh, separation, uh, and not cutting their hair was one of the things that they they adhered to. And it says, 
he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, Samson's deal is he has literal superhuman strength. God has given him incredible strength. But in addition to his strength, he also has an incredible weakness. Samson is a relational mess. Uh, He loves women, and who could blame him for that? But he just does not know how to handle a relationship appropriately. Samson is a disaster. He's like a he-man with a she problem. (laughs) Felt good, didn't it? Uh, I debated. That was stupid. I shouldn't have said that. But here's what happens in Samson's life. Uh, it's a f- somewhat familiar story, and I don't, I don't want to take too much time with it. Uh, so you'll read it this week if you're not familiar with it. But Samson is the judge. Like he's, he's the man that God had appointed to lead the nation back to peace and prosperity. And Samson, even for him, he decided, God's not enough. Something else is going to make me happier. In his case, he was just really passionate Uh, about one woman specifically, but about a whole bunch of them. And what we see in chapter 8 is this steady slide for Israel during the period of the judges where the people just became perpetually discontent with what God had given them. Now, uh, we live in an extremely prosperous society. Um, I'm assuming that all of us uh, spent the night last night in some kind of a shelter of some kind. And uh, even if you didn't, there's a place you can go to get that. I mean, we, our, our world in our corner of it is so much different than anything that's ever existed. Uh, we have so much to be grateful for. Uh, but have you been discontent with what you have at some point recently? Uh, the answer for all of us is probably yes to some degree. Now, as we mature, hopefully that happens less and less. Uh, but we've all, we've all experienced it. And the last sentence of the book of Judges says, Judges 21, 25, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone just chased what was important in their own eyes, and it was a mess. It was a disaster. Everyone did what they wanted to do, and darkness just settled in over the whole, over the whole land. For Israel, God wasn't enough. All that God had given them Um, apparently wasn't enough. They wanted to chase some other things. They wanted an upgrade. They wanted a promotion. Uh, They wanted more, something new, something more exciting than what God had given them. Discontentment has real implications for us. Like, it's something that we can relate to. So think about some of the, like, some of the big implications in our society. There's small ones in our lives all the time, but how many marriages have failed because of discontentment? Uh, You know what? You're not meeting my needs. Surely someone else can do it. Now, Do things ever explode and there are biblical reasons for that to happen? Yes. Uh, But most of the time in my life, the problem is me. Uh, How many addictions are fueled by this discontentment? Uh, A reasonable amount of something just isn't enough for me. I need more. Or I need something stronger. Uh, How many debts, like financial, like real, actual, literal debts, are piled up because of discontentment? A better this, a better that. Uh, I deserve what they have, or uh, more of what I have is somehow necessary. What I've got isn't enough. How many families, this, one, this is one that I, in my stage of life, I see this all the time, uh, families that are just strung out and exhausted because, dang it, we're going to give our kids every opportunity to participate in every single thing that they ever want to participate in. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how much time it takes, but I got to give my kids every single opportunity that everybody else looks like they might be getting on social media. How many families just get exhausted by that? I don't know the number, but I I know that it's a lot. Uh, The point of the story is that sometimes we think we're making an upgrade by chasing what's going to, we think will make us happy. We get caught in the cycle of 
chasing happiness when we could be choosing joy in the things that God's already given us. Uh, this is what we do, okay? This is, this is like a word picture for you. We'll take the God who's given us everything and the God who wants to give us eternal joy, like forever, we'll take him and we'll trade him in for all these little gods who have literally done nothing for us and they will be replaced with a new version in seven months. Uh, now, off the cuff, that sounds like a really dumb trade, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like a really, really, really stupid trade, but, but we do it all the time. I do it all the time. Maybe you don't. Uh, but what I really care about is your joy. And I understand sometimes you have to fight for it. It's, not, it's easy for me to say, choose joy. Uh, that's like the easiest thing in the world to say. Two words, nothing to it. Uh, sometimes you have to fight for it. Sometimes you have to do it over and over and over every day. I get it. I've been there. So I want to just offer you this piece of encouragement. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come back. We're going we're gonna to sing a song before we go. Um, but I want to offer you this, this piece of encouragement, okay? Just reality. Um, I know full well that as soon as Apple convinces me that I need the newest iPhone, uh, once they sucker me into it and they get me in the store and they get me under contract, they're going to turn on me. And next year they're going to tell me, no, 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 you need this iPhone. Okay, we all know that's going to happen. Like, we all know that's how it works. Uh, we all know that, uh, man, that job that I'm just so excited about, getting that new job, uh, we all know that that job isn't going to be all fun and games, otherwise they wouldn't have to pay you to do it, right? It's going to come with its own set of burdens, even though it looks really good right now compared to the old one. Now, sometimes that transition is necessary. Sometimes that's important. Sometimes that's good. Uh, but what we know is it's not going to be like permanent happiness or I just do it for free. We all know that. Uh, here's, here's a good one. Uh, we all know that if I like stick to the diet and I hit the gym, it's going to have implications for my physical well-being. It's going to do good things. But if I hang around long enough, age and gravity are going to do their thing. Right? We all know like it's not a permanent thing. Life is a temporary situation. We all know that happiness has a shelf life. But on the other hand, Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You can come to me because I'm gentle and I'm humble, and you'll have rest for your souls. You will, you will have it if you come to me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the great thing about it is, yeah, that, that discontentment's probably going to try and creep back in again, but you can just keep going back to him because he's not going to be replaced by the new model and he's not going to get tired and he's not all of a sudden going to turn on you and make his burden heavy. You can keep coming back over and over and over. Just like he fought for the Israelites and overcame their enemies for them, he'll always fight for you. He'll always fight for you. John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I came to give you abundant life. All along, God is just simply saying, come to me. Just come to me. Let me fight for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Uh, I want to share one last verse, and then the band is going uh, to lead us. I hope you're ready to sing, uh, because I specifically asked them, hey, let's sing a song of praise. Let's sing a song of joy, uh, because I don't think um, anywhere in the Bible it says, uh, and the Lord said to them, be as sad and quiet as humanly possible when you're worshiping me. Thus says the, no, that's not, that's not in there. It says, come into my presence with singing and shouts of praise. And so we're going to do that. But I want to sh share this voice with you, this verse with you. It's from Psalm 28, verse 7. It says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him. Get this. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart trusts in him and it works. 
He actually, he takes action. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to him in song. That's, that's a decision to worship him. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed people. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. The Lord is your strength. He will fight for you. Choose joy by praising him in song. We're going to sing this and then I'm going to come back and we'll pray and we'll shut it down. thank you that we have victory forever in your name because of you. Uh, it's, it's already done and, and really all we have to do is just cooperate with what you've already decided. We have the opportunity to just step into it just, just that easy in spite of all that we've done wrong and all that's gone wrong. You're, your first move is always grace. That's your first step towards us. And so, um, God, I, I know that you have grace available for every one of us. Um, and so, Lord, I pray that you just help us to learn how to tap into that, how to really get in touch with that. There's, there's, um, okay, I'm not talking to God now, I'm talking to you. <laughs> there's, there's really two kinds of trees that go, grow in the garden of God's grace. There's um, forgiveness, hallelujah, I need that, thank God for that. Our sins have been covered with that, but, but the other kind of grace is God's favor toward us, and it's, it's for everyone who wants it, but it's not always compatible with my attitude, if that makes sense. I got I to gotta choose to cooperate with what God is doing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive that grace and, and really dial in on where you're going and your plan A for us and for our families and for our church. God, I pray that you'd help us to get excited about where you're trying to lead us uh, and just know that the other things we're sure will make us happy are so temporary, God. Help us choose joy this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, next week, uh, Pastor Rick is actually going to share with us about the story of Ruth and Naomi, which is one of the great stories of God's compassion uh, ever known to man. So I want to encourage you to be here, uh, be thinking about who needs to hear the story of compassion. It'll be awesome. I love you guys. Have an amazing Sunday afternoon.